go in three. Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, August 26, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Noah Rothman is out this week joining us. A great pleasure, a fan favorite, an American, a young American institution, MSNBC, NBC political analyst and master of the big board, Steve Kornacki. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, John. I'm always happy to uh, to come on. Okay, so Steve, this is a this is an incredible week in American politics because we have this great um, flip. We have this uh, what appears to be a a massive or what is being covered as a massive momentum shift in 2022 midterm politics with the wind suddenly at the backs of the Democrats. Now, you had me on a, a midterm special, uh, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. Um, and we had a whole long conversation with me very, you know, almost pompously saying, I just don't see how a wave, I mean, you just look at all these conditions for a wave. So so depending on what happens, I could be eating major crow and never get booked on any television show as a political pundit again if November goes the way, if you were thinking the, the way things are this week and the way people are feeling this week, you would say, wow, like you know, suddenly everything changed. Is that, is it plausible that everything changed or is it that uh, people were overestimating Republican chances or underestimating Democratic chances or that, look, when people actually go to the polls, that's when you actually know what's happening. And we're always, we always think that we know based on polling data but that we need elections to actually tell us what's going on. And when we talk about stuff beforehand, yeah, we're just, you know, we're just, we're, we're, we mentioned historical examples and things like that, but we're just basically flying blind. Well, I guess, first of all, you weren't the only one on that special who was, uh, <laughs> who was kind of uh, poo-pooing the Democrats' chances of, of a good year. And I think that's where, I think that's where, you know, sort of the, the, the consensus was at that point, that, that special you're talking about was timed to, 100 days before the midterm. So that's when when we were doing that. And I think at that point, there were you were starting to see a few things in the the sort of, I don't know, traditional metrics you look at, like the generic ballot um, that were starting to make you go, hmm, you know, the, the generic ballot at that point was tightening. Um, Democrats, it had moved a few points in the Democrats' direction since really since that Supreme Court ruling at the end of June. There'd been a couple of special elections they even came with an asterisk so you could you could discard them if you wanted to but there have been a couple special elections one in nebraska one in minnesota where the democrats had outperformed again both of these in the wake of that supreme court ruling so both of those made you kind of go hmm yeah you could look at some of the senate races the individual candidate problems that the the republicans seem to be having that could make you go hmm and so i really i was looking to this this race this week in new york's 19th district as, as sort of the clearest indicator we've had uh, more we were going to get because both parties were so heavily invested in it. Um, you know, both candidates are, are going to be running in different districts in November, but these are two candidates who are, you know, we've had some other special elections where the candidates just, they're going to, they're one-offs, they're running, they're going to serve a few months in Congress and that's it. Neither party really invested much money. This was the closest thing you got to a real, real test here where there's a lot of money, a lot of effort by both parties to, 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 uh, to win this, uh, to win this race. And I think what, what you saw really is in line with the idea of a shift in the in the political climate in the Democrats' uh, uh, favor. I mean, it's I, first of all just you know the fact that it's a seat that's you know it was Trump plus seven in 2016. It was Biden plus a point and a half in 2020. It's exactly the kind of seat that the the Republican Congressional Committee at the start of this cycle would have right away said this is this is prime pickup opportunity. Then you tell them, well, hey, the Democratic incumbent's not even going to be running. He's going to become the lieutenant governor in New York, so it's going to be an open seat. I mean, that should be almost mm -hmm. in, a, in a wave environment for Republicans. That should be almost automatic. And instead, Democrat actually slightly outperformed Biden. And, and what jumped out most to me is that the two core Democratic counties in this district, and that's Ulster County, Columbia County, um, in 2020, they made up 36 percent of the vote in the district. In the special election, they made up 42 percent of the vote in the district. So again, it just it just pointed to 
sort of the opposite of what you would expect to see in a midterm year. And that is that it's the in power party that the base is more motivated. We've seen this in, in four special elections now since since the Supreme Court ruling. You would expect smaller turnout in a special election, but you would expect that the more motivated party would be the opposition party. And right now, at least, we're seeing that it's the uh, the in power party. And it just I, I just contrast it in my head to where everything was last November after New Jersey in Virginia. I mean, we saw 13 point swings in both states and we were saying, geez, if you extrapolate this across 435 congressional districts, it's an absolute landslide. Um, but but these results, and especially this one this week, are just not consistent with that. Okay, so I, I started developing a theory the other day on the podcast that is very tasteless, but I don't know how else to frame it. Um, could, trying to figure out sort of analogies to the past that will make sense of this. And the question I think that is before us is the midterm, you know, in our lifetimes, well, I guess there were two because you sort of say 98, but but I mean, the midterm in our lifetimes that seems to have defied normal gravity was 2002. Uh Bush was not a, you know, Bush uh, came in, uh, you know, that was a 50-50 election, uh, didn't have control of the Senate. Um, you know, the economy was not in good shape, uh, all of that. And yet, because of 9-11, uh, they defied gravity and the Republicans actually picked up seats in the House and the Senate in 2002. And it was a sort of a startling Result, given what we have, what we had thought previously about about midterms, even though four years earlier, uh, Republicans had were disappointed in the results of the '98 midterms because they thought they had Clinton on the ropes, and then apparently the American people were sick of Lewinsky Gate by November and punished them for focusing on it so heavily. But the question is: Is Dobbs? 9-11. That's, that's the tastelessness. It was the Dobbs decision. The Dobbs decision, um, and we we speculated that this might be the case when the Supreme Court first took up, said it was going to take on this case back in, I think, June of 2021, that when they put it on the docket, that, you know, just didn't know what the politics were going to be. But, but, you know, has Dobbs has this one thing really done something in politics that rarely happens and in and of itself has changed the political dynamic? Yeah, I'm not convinced that it's just Dobbs. I mean, we, right. th- so much of this you can time to, you know, th- around that decision. And I think it's played a role. I don't think there's any question it's played a role in um motivating Democratic voters and I think sort of tightening the Democratic coalition folks, you know, Democratic leaning voters who um, support legal abortion, who maybe were down on Biden or were tuning out a little bit. I think it it, it brought them all back in. But I think there's probably some other factors here. One is I, I, I do think something that's different in this midterm than any previous midterm, and we'll see if it ends up having a big effect, is just the lingering presence of the former president, of Donald Trump. And I think we've had a summer with, first of all, primetime uh, January 6th hearings, and a summer in which there's been a lot of focus on Trump-aligned candidates racking up wins in some high-profile races by echoing his claims about the 2020 election and, and about January 6th and all of these things. I think we've had you know a summer full of attention paid to that as well. I suspect that has had a very similar effect on Democratic voters as the the Supreme Court decision itself. Um, So, again, the the piece of it that's clear to me, just from these special elections, you could see it in in our own NBC poll. One one thing that we track is we ask people, and this is a good one because we've been doing this for decades, so you can track this over time. We ask people to rate on a scale of 1 to 10 their interest in the midterm election, 10 the highest, one the lowest. And we, we combined the nines and the tens. And back in March of this year, it was a 17-point gap. De- uh, Republicans were 17 points more likely to be a nine or 10 than Democrats. In our newest poll, it's basically a tie. It's 68% for the Republicans, 66% for the Democrats. That Republican number has been flat all year. That Democratic number has been rising. Um, so I think the piece of it of, of increased Democratic motivation around abortion, I think around Trump, I suspect. But the other piece of it that I think is missing a little bit is 
I'm thinking back to, to, to New Jersey and Virginia last year, and I'm thinking back to some of the turnout patterns we saw, I'm th- particularly in New Jersey. Because one of the reasons that that race was so close in New Jersey was the Republican-leaning areas of the state, which is to say South Jersey, were just on fire with turnout. And the core Democratic areas of the state, much more North Jersey, when you think of like the Newark area of Jersey City, Hudson County, that sort of thing, turnout was miserable. And we're seeing, when I look at this, I, I thought of it right away when I looked at the special election in, uh, uh, in the Hudson Valley and the, 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 uh, the Catskills this week in New York, at complete opposite. It's the Democratic areas that are on fire and it's the Republican areas that are asleep. I mean, the, the Republican candidate in this special election exceeded Trump's numbers in the core Republican-aligned counties in that district, but he got anemic turnout. And the Democratic candidate exceeded Biden's totals in the Democratic areas and got surge turnout. So I think something else has happened there on the Republican side where it's there was a mood, there was an energy that's not, it's kind of stalled, I think. I'm not sure why, but I think it's stalled a little. I, I, I have a, a thought on that. I'm, this is hardly the, the sole contributing factor. Um, part of the stall, I think, may be connected to Dobbs in that if you're a socially conservative Republican, um, you've kind of won, uh, in some sense, you can, you can sort of sit, but you can, you can sit back and say, well, especially if you're, you're, you're in New York, because the, the, the state law is not going to change dramatically here. Um, but also if you're a sort of newer Trumpy, uh, Republican, you may not even be particularly pro-life. I, I wonder, see, Trump's a double-edged sword, even in the Republican Party. That that's 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 that was disguised or hidden, if I'm right about this, by his numbers in in, in Republican circles. Right, we know that he did not coalesce the Republican Party during the 2016 campaign. He only got 45 percent of the vote, but the winner-take-all primary system meant that he, you know, won pretty convincingly, um, and then. You know, over time, in part because of the general rally round the president effect and all sorts of other things, Republicans, nine out of 10 Republicans said they thought he did a good job. They were against his impeachment and all of that. But, you know, a lot of people were not enthusiastic and a lot of people weren't radicalized by the 2016 to 2020 period. And this renewed focus on Trump in the news maybe having a depressive effect on the Republican who is not Trumpy, which isn't to say that if he were on the ballot, they wouldn't vote for him. But they don't want to talk about the 2020 election. They don't, you know, they're tired. They, they, you know, they're having a little bit of a, ugh, and they don't have, why isn't the news focused on how bad Biden is? Now, it's weird, by the way, because if we have a bifurcated polarized environment, Christine, like you would say, okay, the news is about inflation. The new, you know, inflation's bad, even though people say, well, it's settled into a groove, kind of like a wildly inflationary groove. So the inflation news is getting better and this and that and the other thing. But I will say that the general idea of talking about how bad the economy is and inflation, which I think was conventional wisdom in this guy Molinaro in the race in the, in New York 19, ran his race pretty much on inflation. inflation and crime. Yeah. Right. And um but not about how bad Biden is. And right. so maybe what you need is the is a Republican focus on the enemy and the and inflation, whatever inflation is. So the idea is you talk about inflation, people will blame Biden and the Democrats because they're the party in power and they will give you their vote. But Maybe the way our politics works is oddly Republicans, the Republicans who are in these races aren't attack, aren't going on the attack against Biden and the Democrats yeah. enough, except on the election denial front, which is not interesting to most people, well, is my that, guess. Okay, that might change though. So this okay. is this is where two two points on that that have just emerged in one in the last 24 hours and the other in just in the last week. The 24-hour point is the 
the Biden executive order about uh, student loan forgiveness. The finally, the the Republican side has come out with, a, I think, what will turn out to be a fairly effective message, which is uh, entirely mocking, but is going to hit home. And it's a it's a commercial that a, that an interest group has been putting out, out on YouTube already and spreading around. Um, and it shows a lot of uh, probably actors, as working class people, there's a mechanic, there's a landscaper, and there's a waitress. And they speak direct to camera and they say things like, do you want to be a theater major? It's on me. I'm working two jobs, but that's okay. I'll just have a little more coffee so you can get a business degree. You know, go out and buy that new car. It's on me. And it's extremely sarcastic, but it gets right at the core of a message that is very populist, very persuasive to people who um, are not college educated and can't afford to send their kids to college right now for a number of reasons. And um, it doesn't mention Trump at all. It has nothing to do with the Trump messaging anything about the past. And it's one of those things that in terms of galvanizing someone to get to the polls, if you're looking at the current economy, but have kind of, as you said, John lapsed into, well, well, this is where we're stuck for a while. Um, but you don't like Biden and you don't like what the Democrats are planning to do if they retain their majority, that's effective messaging. On the post-Dobbs era, one of the things we've discussed is how sort of scrambled or lacking the Republicans have been with any sort of responsive message um, at all in terms of the concerns about the voters who don't want um, who want the vast majority who want some restrictions early on in pregnancy, but uh, or later in pregnancy and not at the beginning. Um, finally, we're seeing some Republican candidates start to to tone their message down. And, and human weather vane Blake Masters in Arizona has just removed from his website, I am 100% pro-life. And some of the more, you know, the the in-your-face rhetoric of, of, you know, I'm 100% pro-life. He had had stuff on there about wanting a constitutional amendment to uh, for personhood, for fetus, and all this stuff is now gone. And there's going to be some toning down of the messaging uh, there. So it'll be curious to see if, A, that has any effect if more candidates do that, ones who are at risk on, on the abortion issue. Issue. And B, if if that's something that's going to persuade voters who care about abortion as their primary issue, I don't know. We'll see. But I thought that was it was interesting to me because he's been a pretty uh, vocal pro-life candidate up until this week. So I think partially what I'm saying is that I bought into the idea. I think I bought into the idea that uh, the Republicans have been handed a gift politically by the non-ideological nature of the trouble that Biden had gotten himself into. That, you know, we're just, it's just like the economy is terrible. Your groceries cost a lot more money. They're in charge of the House, the Senate, and the White House. They pushed these inflationary bills. You know who to blame. But maybe that just doesn't jazz people, you know. People maybe care about bodily, a, but they but they care yeah. about the bodily autonomy privacy issue when you look at yeah. some, and, and Steve will know more about this than I do, but the but the polling, people care a lot when they think about the federal government telling me what to do with my body. That polls really strongly in favor yeah. of the Democrats right now, not the Republicans. Even more, I mean, I, that's a very powerful message, especially yeah. for those younger voters that the Democrats yeah. need. And uh, and the, Steve, there's also this idea, or somebody expressed it, and I thought it was really interesting, that because the most important political event of this year isn't an, an act of Congress or something that the president signed, but was an act by the Supreme Court, the idea that Biden is in control of everything and and is the is the mode the only important motive actor in American politics, plus the focus on Trump, which makes you think Trump is still kind of president, even though he isn't president. Like, that's where Democrats get to say, we're not in power, or people get, get to vote and say, you know, we're, we're, we're not running things, and we better go to the polls to make sure that we can run things. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the, the, the history on, on midterm elections. I mean, again, it's one of these things where it, it, it almost looked like a science. You mentioned 2002 and 1998. Those are the only... <clears throat> broaden it out. FDR made gains in the 1934 midterms. <laughs> and after that, the only two times the White House party has gained seats are 98 and 02. It has been a loss of seats in every other midterm election since 1934. The only question is how many. And, and we've seen that it. it's just become, we saw Clinton lose Congress in his first term. You know, we saw W lose in his second term. We saw Obama in his first term, Trump in his first term. And everybody, I think, came into this Biden presidency, even Democrats, with the expectation that it, the question on uh, in 2022 midterms wouldn't be, would it be bad? It would be, how bad would it be? And I, I, I suspect 
that yeah, I think what you're saying about the Supreme Court ruling is is, is valid in terms of how that's that's changed how some people look at this. And again, I just I, I I in my mind I keep coming back to the lingering presence of Trump and Trump's fixation on 2020 and whether that's changed the basic dynamic that's allowed the out of power party to almost always win midterm elections because the basic dynamic is the out of power party basically is able to step back and serve as a protest vehicle because everybody's always going to have some complaint or some grievance with the party that's in charge, especially when that party has the White House and the House and the Senate, as Democrats do now. And so typically the function of the of the out of power party is just to say, oh, this is your grievance. That's your grievance. This is your grievance. Well, we agree with you. We agree with you. We agree with you. And, and it makes it just positions them perfectly for these big you know, midterm scores that we've been seeing over and over. And I just wonder if 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 there's now a counterbalance to the Democrats being in charge and to Trump still being you know, an ongoing presence to his aligned candidates being very, very prominent. All of the claims about 2020 being very prominent. Um, if if that has not neutralized the typical midterm effect, if it's a motivated the Democratic base in a way it wouldn't normally be motivated, but b the other question, and this is something we'll get to as we as we really start to get into likely voter models with our polls post Labor Day, are, are there swing voters who would typically view the a midterm as a referendum on the Biden presidency? who are inclined suddenly to view this as a referendum on the Trump party as much as the Biden party. And I think if you get into that territory and you're a Republican, you're in real trouble. Well, the Democrats must think that Biden was just in Rockville, Maryland this week. And he's already he he even says, uh, you know, yes, Trump is terrible, ultra MAGA, but it's not just Trump. It's the whole idea. And he called it semi fascism, which coming from Biden, who's usually pretty a lot more milquetoast in his rhetoric. I was struck by that, that he would would use the fascism word. And and I think so he they must believe that that will be a compelling message going forward for them to keep bringing up the Trump and the Republican Party are one and the same in a lot of Democratic messaging. Yeah. And it's you know, they definitely believe it. And there's a long track record of parties convincing themselves that that it's going to happen and then it doesn't. I mean, I I remember Democrats in 2010 were convinced that, that, you know, people would make it a referendum as much on the Tea Party as healthcare or the Tea Party and Obama, that obviously didn't work out then. But it, I, I'm open to the possibility this time only because the Tea Party was a, a you know, it was this movement and there's no real fit. Trump is a former president, is just a singular figure in our in our culture. Um, it, so I, I, I am open to the possibility that it, that it does make this year an exception. And we have the evidence of Trump's influence and the fact that it is deleterious. We have these Senate candidates, and it's not just our feeling that they're doing badly to the Trump-endorsed Senate candidates, right? Oz, Walker, Masters, Vance. Um, They're doing badly in an environment in which uh, they should be doing well. And um, that, of course, I think not only emboldens Democratic political consultants to say, hmm, there's something going on here that, but it's also the kind of thing that midterm voters have tended to be more high information voters than low information voters. They know what's going on. They know these candidates are doing badly. And if they're high information voters and they, they may say the press is being mean, it's not fair the way they're, they cover Republicans and all of that. But, um, just like Trump doesn't like losers, Republicans don't like losers. These guys are smelling like losers. And that will have that number, that enthusiasm gap that has now closed isn't just, I mean, maybe it's all because Democratic enthusiasm is is hypercharged and there is increased Republican turnout and stuff like that. But it may be like, they're like, we're not doing well. Things are not going well. And it's not going to be good. And what the heck? Like, I, I'm not. You, I'm not going to. I'll pay attention to something else. This is too depressing. Like, you know, you can't look at this and say, "Wow, you know, I'm part of a vanguard that is going to crush everything." That's the interesting thing about the Trump. What psychologically it will mean if this goes badly for Republicans in November? about what Trump represents, because he will then have lost midterms in 18, lost the presidency in 2020, and will have played a signature role 
and a disappointing Republican performance in 2022, that is pretty overwhelming evidence of of a of a glaring political weakness in Trump and Trumpism. Republicans may not want to look at that. We don't know. But reality is reality, and you can pretend that gravity isn't gravity, but at some point, you know, you do three experiments with the apple falling out of the tree on your head, and you can't deny that the apple falls off the tree and that gravity exists. Abe? Yep, John, you had said before, it's it's kind of like Trump is still president um, in, yeah. in regard to the sort of democratic motivation here. And I think this is this has to do with the reason he's in the news now is very unique. It's not just that he's been ranting on social media, that he's said crazy things. That it, he's in the news for a story that itself almost seems to have extended his presidency. It's about him taking presidential documents, uh, whether putting aside the merits of the of the of the case. It's about his taking taking presidential documents to his home and what he has, what he may or may not have done with them, what he could do with them, um, and so on. So it's almost as if they are they, the Democrats are being forced to to again sort of confront an extended Trump presidency. I mean, it's interesting because um, this event, the series of events around the Mar-a-Lago raid or the warrant search or whatever you want to call it, um, just like Dobbs. You know, it's that thing that Harold Macmillan said, right? It's uh, you know how what 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 explains what happened to your political position, and he said events, dear boy, events. I mean, things happen in politics. That's why they're interesting. Like if if politics were a straight line projection, nobody would be interested. In it. You don't know that Biden and the Democrats, with their backs against the wall, are suddenly going to find their sea legs out of desperation and get some legislation passed or do this very daring thing they did with the, I think it's daring and maybe may have been stupid with the loan, with the, with the student loans. Um, one of the things that Republicans were looking at was just how incompetent Biden and the Democrats appeared. And suddenly they don't seem so incompetent. And that is the sort of thing that can, that can like, infuse wind into the lungs of a democratic party that was otherwise depressed right and like panting and thinking that it was it was on the ropes i don't know my my my, my metaphors are going psychotic here, got a lot of metaphors today i'm sorry yeah made too many metaphors <laughs> but right Can Steve, I I mean, though, yeah go ahead i was just going to say though but there, that there's certainly room there uh we've talked about this over and over that there there's a kind of hubris to the Democratic, you know, wind in our sails moment right now um, that could backfire. We're still a ways out from Election Day. And I I, I go back to, you know, I talked to my friends from Florida. I talked to um, my friends who are not plugged into politics a lot. One of the things they're always saying is how condescended to a lot of the messaging is. It's like, look, we've done all this legislatively, but much of it tells people how to live in their daily lives in a way that's seen as intrusive or elitist. And these are people who have been Democratic voters in the past, too. So it's not a, it's not an ideological thing. It's a tone. It's a messaging thing. And I think, while happy to listen to Democrats rail against the threat of, you know, uh, fascist or, or semi-fascist, as the, as the president would say, semi-fascist Trump MAGAism and stuff. When it comes to those kitchen table issues, they don't want to be told that the answer to their electric bill problem right now and, and going into the winter is to install solar panels. They can't afford solar panels. They can't afford to send their kid. They can't afford to take a vacation this year. So there's a sense in which maybe the, the Democrats boasting about everything they're doing for the American people, if it's not effectively felt by the American people soon, is not going to work. And I think that's where the student loan forgiveness thing comes in. It's a, it's not a promise it's likely to be fulfilled, but it's a promise that a lot of people will instantly look at their checkbook and say, oh, well, that'll really make a difference for me, college-educated people. I still think it's just bad in politics to look like you don't know what you're doing, and particularly with Biden, because of his age, it's a double-edged sword, or it's a it's a it's a very dangerous thing for him to look as though he doesn't know what he's doing, because then it literally looks like he doesn't know what he's doing, and that there may be a medical or you know uh, gerontological issue there, and at least the passage of 
I'm not going to call it. I'll, I will call it the Inflation Reduction Act because I don't know what else to call it. But I mean, at least the passage of that, even by the way, even combined with maybe the fact that they staged the raid, even though supposedly the White House didn't know, makes him look like he's in charge and that he knows what he's and that he can work his will. Whereas from Afghanistan onward, did Afghanistan, it was a disaster. Inflate, he said inflation was transitory. It wasn't. He, you know, got COVID twice. He didn't look, he didn't look good. And like, if you're a Democrat, like it's really depressing. I mean, I, the only thing I can analogize this to is sort of 86, 87 Reagan, Iran Contra. Like it was depressing to be a conservative or a Republican. Like nothing was going right. It didn't feel good. Um, and then Reagan rallied. Uh, Ron Contra was over. They passed a couple of major pieces of legislation, and '88 was a feel-good year for Republicans. And there was huge Republican enthusiasm voting for Bush in '88 as a kind of third Reagan term. And I just think you can't underestimate that, at least in terms of if what you needed to do is neutralize the Republican enthusiasm, that may have happened, and that probably has legs. Like, I don't know what punctures of the hole in that balloon because it's already it's almost September. So it may not have the positive effect on the voters you're talking about, Christine, but at least in terms of neutralizing the drag yourself across broken glass to get to the polls person, the advantage that Republicans had in spades, like now that's pretty well, much wiped off though. That they should probably stop using the White House Twitter account to mock Republicans for taking PPP loans. Like that's another weird thing, like trying to compare the student loan forgiveness to what the PPP loans did, which which explicitly stated in the loan language when it was issued that they were forgivable loans to start. That well, I don't understand that. that. Yeah. I mean, they're well, just mocking Republicans. Well, they're, I get they're it. just they're just trying, first of all, mocking Marjorie Taylor Greene is never that's a bad thing. I wholly never endorse that thing. effort. Right. But... <laughs> but but I do think that I mean the central thing here is that it's an unbelievably bad analogy because all yeah. the PPP loans were designed to do, and I say this as somebody who runs a business that took a PPP loan, uh, you know, runs a nonprofit, it was a way of privatizing unemployment insurance and having people not have to get be fired from their jobs in order to get the wages that they needed so that the so that this so that America wouldn't fall off a cliff economically and it was probably it was probably a lot of waste and a lot of this and a lot of that but it was a very effective program in terms of making sure that people remained employed and that there was a flow of money to them i don't think anybody thinks that that was a bad deal even though we're going to hear there's there was a lot of fraud related to it this is an entirely separate matter and it's 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 bad and i i think people will see through it but you just never know i mean i don't know who who we're even talking about when you say people are going to see through it um but uh, steve looking at the generic polling which is usually the best example people give in terms of the national atmosphere or whatever so in 2014 when republicans picked up 15 seats in the house and nine senate seats in part because they learned the lesson that they've now forgotten, which is that they needed candidates that were appealing to people outside the Republican base because they had had two bad cycles with people who weren't. And then they got really good candidates, Joni Ernst, Cory Gardner, and a whole bunch of people, and they won nine seats. The generic today, as far from what I can tell, is almost exactly where it was in 2014. Yep. Now, now, the trend is going in the Democrats' direction, but it was around even, right, in this last week of August in 2014. I, I got the date September 8th circled on my calendar because it was uh -huh. September 8th, 2014, when the average flipped to the Republicans and never looked back. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there, the, the last two big Republican midterms are 10 and 14. In 10, that Republicans had long since taken off with a big lead in the midterms at this point, and it was ballgame. In 14, yes, the Democrats actually led, um, or even better, in, in the generic ballot on this date in 2014 than they are right now. So it, it leaves open the possibility that, yes, post-Labor Day, um, maybe there's some higher engagement um, you know, from swing voters. Maybe some of these economic issues we're talking about take center stage again, uh, kind of reassert themselves and how, how folks view the midterms. I, I'm open to, you know, possibility that this student loan uh, 
um, you know, gambit here backfires on the Democrats. I mean, maybe that could, and then just who knows what the, the next, you know, couple of months will bring. So those are, there are all sorts of possibilities there. The, the one thing though, that when I look at the, the, the generic ballot average from 2014, that, that is noticeable to me though, is that the Democrats from late 2013, remember there's the government shutdown in late 2013, from late 2013 through Labor Day of 2014, Democrats basically led the generic ballot. This time, we have a scenario where the Republicans were far ahead on the generic ballot. Late 2021, New Jersey, Virginia, well into 2022. And it started to change in the summer. And so, you know, that's where I start. It it does feel like in 2014, it was just a question of really getting to a point when people got the sort of regular people started engaging in the election and the Republicans zoomed off. I, there's been high engagement throughout the last year and a half, and there's been a switch in there. Yeah. So I, I just, that, that's, that's the difference that I see. But yeah, the other thing is just, you know, you're, you're talking a little bit there about some of the, um, the, the potential demotivation of Republicans. I, I should mention this week, Florida in its primary, this jumped out to me as well. Um, that was a very motivated Republican electorate in Florida. Um, there was no race for gov- Republican race for governor. There was no Republican race for U.S. Senate. There was a Democratic primary for governor. There was nominally a Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate. The Democrats are very excited about the turnout they got in their primary um, in Florida. They got 1.5 million to turn out for those primaries. In 2018, they got 1.4 million in their primaries. They had competitive primaries then, too. But the other side of that is Republicans with no race for governor, no race for U.S. Senate. The the marquee race on the Republican side in Florida was for agriculture commissioner. And they got one point six million school board elections. elections. Right. And and one point five million in 18. And I I, what you were saying there a minute ago, John, I, you know, people playing this far ahead here. But I, I I have been wondering if there is a scenario where these Trump endorsed Senate candidates in places like Pennsylvania and Arizona and Georgia end up costing the party control of the Senate and leading to a, just a generally, mm, that wasn't great midterm for Republicans. And then DeSantis is able to say, well, that, that was true in 49 states, but in Florida, the school board elections this week, I, I, and again, the turnout, I, I mean, it, there is a, this week's primary told me there is a functioning, motivated well-organized Republican Party in Florida, um, right. which is not to say DeSantis is going to win in a landslide because every Florida election is going to be inside of three or four points. Um, but uh, Democrats were really talking up the 1.5 million in there with the Charlie Chris primary saying, hey, maybe Chris has a chance. I, I don't know. But I look at that 1.6 million in an agriculture primary on the Republican side and I say they're, they're ready to counterpunch. Right. Well, I mean, it, Christine mentioned the school board elections and that, that was there were there were 30 local school board um, elections in which candidates unseated there was 25 to 25 out of 30 races. There were competitive school board races, which is like, that's like a talk about a black swan event in political history. Like often school board elections are off cycle. They don't take place at the same time as the other elections in part to keep their turnout. It's a weird factor of corruption in American politics that people are sort of they they states often like schedule weird elections to get people not to turn out so they can control you know the three percent that do turn out and so here we had school board elections on a major ballot and you had this insane turnout and I don't know if that's duplicable it probably isn't uh in other states it could be just a, a feature of Florida and that places where stuff like that is motivated may not be able to generate it by November. But I, I mean, I'm also struck by the fact that in 2014, if you remember, I mean, you everybody here probably remembers, Obama came out after the 2014 midterms were so terrible and said, these don't count because nobody turned out like it was. Te- he had acknowledged the shellacking in 2010. He called it a shellacking. And then in 2014, he's like, 30% of the American people turned out. I don't know how I'm supposed to take that as a referendum on me. And I that was preposterous in a way, but that's not going to happen this time. Right? I mean, we are not going to see 
one of the reasons that those nine Republicans won the Senate was that Democratic turnout and enthusiasm really cratered. And he wasn't on the ballot in 10 or 14. And the, everybody who came out to vote for him wasn't there in 10 and 14. But Democrats have now demonstrated that they know how to do turnout in midterms. In 2018, they got 62 million votes in a midterm. That was like more votes than John McCain got running, and I th maybe more votes than Romney got in their presidential bids, which was like unimaginable. Um, there was 118 million people turnout in 2018. This is 2022. Republicans are motivated, but Democrats are going to be motivated. And so you're not going to, it may just be that the mistake was trying to analogize this to lower turnout midterm elections, because if there's high turnout, that means Democrats are going to turn out. Yeah, just a quick stat on that. I mentioned that our NBC poll has that motivation index. Nine or 10 is, is what we track. In 2014, the final number was 62 percent of Republicans were highly motivated and 51 percent of Democrats right. were highly motivated. So first of all, numbers are much lower than the numbers you get right now. And this was on Election Day 2014, but also double digit gap. Now it's 68, 66 in our most recent poll. So this is so, you know, it's like. Uh, sometimes unprecedented things happen and we've had two. Un I mean, Abe, you mentioned the unprecedented. The unprecedented presence of Trump, Trump, the presence of Trump is unprecedented. As a political player, an ex-president, as a as an active political player and dominating his party after he after he loses, it's like. What if Jimmy Carter were still an issue? You know, what if Jimmy Carter was the dominant political player in the Democratic Party in 1982, right? Or, you know, or Bush was the dominant political player in 1994 or something like that. Like, we've never seen anything like this before. It's just bizarre. And, um, and Dobbs. And so we don't have analogies to this year. Now, when we were saying there was a, it was obviously a wave Neither of those had happened yet. <laughs> you know, Dobbs had, you know, the decision hadn't come down. And I think also we have this fact that everything changes on a dime now. Like getting Democrats motivated on Dobbs took five minutes. Like 30 years ago, it would have taken two years for a massive political result in a Supreme Court decision to really, I think, filter down. Like, people didn't know, there was no, you know, people, there would be a bit of coverage, but it was too complicated, blah, blah, blah. Like, everybody was, you know, already, the fuse was lit the second, pretty much after the leak of the decision, I think, not even, not even the, not even the actual decision. And, by the way, but that's right, there's two months, and who knows what happens now? Like, we're recording this, it's now... A little before 11 a.m. In an hour, Jay Powell of the Fed is going to come out, and Biden just announced an executive order spending half a trillion dollars, laying on top of where he where the expectation that the Fed was going to raise interest rates in a you know in a in a pretty aggressive manner. And now this week, he's like, "Here's another half trillion dollars uh, that we're going to spend." Who knows what he's going to do? And who knows what effect that will have? And there could be other, you know, I mean, we just, you know, to say we don't, but I was, finally, I was struck by the fact that news came out of, I think Puck reported this, I'm not sure, but that uh, there was a meeting in Wyoming of donors, Montana, Wyoming, something of Republican donors, and Kevin McCarthy, the House, you know, uh, minority leader, said he expected a pickup of 15 seats. And Mitch McConnell is talking kind of like he's expecting that Republicans are not going to pick up the Senate. That is not normal behavior for those guys. Now, they might, I mean, uh, in part because if you're Kevin McCarthy and they have a really bad showing, you're probably toast. I mean, if you're, you know, if somebody really wants to stage a bid against you and you've been leading the party and you've been doing it for two, and this is what comes of it, like, why would people make you majority leader? 
I, I you know, m- minority leader again, or even, even if you win, why would you become speaker? Like you did a crappy job and McConnell is not, not to blame because he's not even controlling the lion's share of the money that Republicans have. But I just think people have to prepare themselves. Like they are either trying to lower expectations so that they outperform, but that has not been the habit of these guys who run these things. They talk a very hot game. They don't want to sound like losers. They don't want to depress giving. And they're talking like, oh boy, you know, like batting down the hatches. That's crazy. I I can remember in 98, the slow and steady dial back of Republican expectations. And I can remember Newt Gingrich, the speaker, right before the 98 midterms, right around this time saying, this is when Clinton had admitted the affair with Lewinsky. The star report was a couple weeks away from being delivered. And he said, we are going to pick up 40 seats this November. And that got dialed back to about 20 uh, by election day. And then, of course, Democrats ended up gaining, you know, five. And um, Gingrich resigned. Gingrich was gone in 72 hours. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He he. not only did he become a back, but he didn't even become a backbencher because they they didn't lose the House. But they, yeah, I mean, he was gone. Uh, that was the craziest 48 hours in politics because he was gone. And then Robert Livingston was going to be speaker <laughs> for about five minutes. And he's like, I had an affair. I'm leaving. I'm going to make a billion dollars as a lobbyist, which he did. <laughs> and then we ended up with. Um, but then, you know, Haster? And boy, years later, that one. Yeah, like- Haster, that went, that went, that went well. Of, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah it's pretty crazy. <laughs> anyway, so, so. I was just thinking this week, Steve, you're like a big sports, you're doing a lot of stuff in sports and all this. And I lot when I got really interested in electoral politics, I kind of lost my interest in sports in the 90s. There were a lot of strikes. Remember, there were a lot of baseball strikes <laughs> and football strikes. And so those inter- interrupted my enthusiasm and all of this. But uh, and so that was part of it. But also is that the, a lot of the pleasure that I got out of following sports, I found in granular following politics granularly was sort of the, that mind space um, was, was taken up. And uh, this is a perfect example of why, because every time you think, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, every time you think, Oh, I got this, you know, look, it's very clear what the patterns are and the fundamentals and I got, I got this. And then you don't got it. You know, Nino Scalia, drops dead in a bed in Texas. I mean, you know, you know, all kinds of things. Life doesn't function in a linear fashion. That's sports is like that. You know, like the Yankees have a bad 12 games and then you think, Oh my God, they're then they win three and then, you know, whatever. So anything you want to tell our, our, our listeners about what kinds of stuff you're looking at in as a fall preview <laughs> in the, in the realm of, since I'm a rare probably person here who's not paying that much attention. Yeah, no, well, I, I, it's an interesting analogy because I, I'm, uh, um, you know, I love to get to do this sports stuff. You know, NBC's given me some, some, you know, great chances the last couple of years. Um, I'm a huge horse racing fan and, to me, that's where the the real overlap is in terms of politics and and horse. I mean, everybody look. It's, they they talk about horse race journalism and 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 politics. I embrace the term. I know most people use it kind of derisively, but yes, I'm into the. I'm interested in the political horse race because it's the same thing. You, you in horse racing, you know, um, this is a big weekend at Saratoga. This is their biggest weekend. Traverse Stakes, and they've got all these other stakes races. And you look at the race, and you 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 just you, you look at the history of it. What kind of horse has run well here? Is it the one? Is it the front runner? Is it the closer? What's the condition of the track? Is it a horse trained by? You can all this collection of variables, and you can trace all of the variables historically, and you think you can figure out the pattern of the race, and then you bet accordingly. And then you know, occasionally it'll work out, and you'll feel like a genius. But a lot of times, you'll just end up with empty pockets, and you know, you kind of. You kind of feel like a loser, but that's that. It, that is the experience for me of trying to break down a political horse race. It's it's taking the variables that we have, it's looking for the patterns historically, and it's trying to extrapolate from them. And it has felt to me, I felt more. Maybe this was because I was just younger, but I felt more confident. Um, I'm going to say ten or fifteen years ago in the ability to do that in the political realm than I do now. Um, I think part of that is I was just young, naive, and overconfident. But I do think another part of it is our politics have changed 
in some meaningful ways that have made electoral outcomes less predictable in, in the last decade or so. Um, I, I think the moment when I look back at it that really started to change things and kind of shake me up is when Eric Cantor lost his primary in 2014. And you're just kind of like, I don't think this would have happened before. Um, AOC winning, you know, in 2018, Trump in 2016. I mean, just a, a, yeah. a lot of things that I think, and 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 the level of interest, I think one of the themes we're talking about in this podcast today is just, um, we're talking about 2014, we're talking about 2022, and in between, the level of interest in politics among everyday people has taken off to a level unknown in my lifetime, and I, I probably, you know, your lifetime, everybody's mm-hmm. lifetime here, um, when you can get 115 million people turning out in a midterm election, that's 2018, and I expect we're going to get a similar number this time, when you can get 160 million in a presidential election, I always say I, I know people who... Um, I went to college with during the Clinton impeachment who maybe could have told you Bill Clinton was president and now obsessively follow it. I I think social media has had a huge thing to do with this, but it's just, I think it's created a level of uncertainty. It's created a lot of question marks around these historical variables that held up pretty well until about 10 years ago. And yeah, I mean, I really, people ask me what, what, what I think is going to happen this November. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know because I, I, I could put, we, we, we talked all about the, the, the ways things may be turning to Democrats advantage. And I, I think they're all, they all raised the possibility of a strong democratic year, but we talk about those two examples, 98 and 02, when the white house party gained seats. And the one thing that Biden does not have in common with either of those presidents is his approval ratings, 25 points lower. Still it's yeah. ticked up a little, but it's still 25 points lower. Can you overcome that? We've, we've never seen it. But again, we're, we, I think we may be in an era when we're seeing things we haven't seen before. So, Steve Kornacki, thank you so much for, for joining us. This was uh, fantastic and revelatory. And I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday. So for Abe and Noah, uh, Abe and the absent Noah and Christine, I'm John Bodhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>